Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, May 30th, we're studying Acts chapter 12, verse 24 through chapter 13, verse 12. The word of God increases and multiplies. The Holy Spirit sends Barnabas and Saul to proclaim the gospel beyond Antioch, and they begin their journey by going to Cyprus. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Lynn, Kansas. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little context, Pastor Cook. What should we know about the book of Acts and what's been happening leading up to the text we've got for today? Great question. Uh, yeah, I guess that wasn't a question. We should just talk about it. Uh, what you should know about the book of Acts is that the Word of God is the main character of the story, and everything else is subservient uh, to that idea, or I suppose builds upon that uh, idea. And uh, so we've, we've got that going on. What has happened uh, recently is, uh, well, it's, it's still all kind of blending together, but uh, the gospel has come to the Gentiles, uh, a congregation has formed in Antioch. James has been killed. There, uh, the Jewish powers at play are discovering that the persecution of Christians is uh, a politically advantageous gesture. Uh, and so Herod gets involved there, uh, and then um, he dies. Peter is uh, sent to prison, but is miraculously rescued. And after the death of Herod, we uh, are now moving to a point where Barnabas and Saul, soon to be called Paul, are uh, sent off uh, to do some missionary work elsewhere. I appreciate the reminder that the Word of God is the main character in the book of Acts, and I think the first verse of our text really emphasizes that. I think it's a good reminder at this point in the book of Acts, because we do reach that point in the book of Acts where in terms of the human players in the book of Acts, Peter starts to recede into the background and Saul, Paul, begins to become the main character that Luke's narrative follows. But again, the word of God is always doing the work here. Correct. Let's go ahead then and dig into the text. We're beginning at Acts chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to, sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. 
Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. That's our text for today, beginning at Acts 12, 24 and going all the way through chapter 13, verse 12. Pastor Cook, let's talk just about that very first verse that we read. The word of God increased and multiplied. We've heard Luke write this way before. What's the significance of the of this verse? It is programmatic for the entire book. Uh, it appears here, uh, the first time you heard it was in chapter 6, and then it will happen again for a third time in chapter 19. And it uh, cause, should cause us to ask a simple question, which is, how does God's Word increase uh, and multiply? And elsewhere, it, you know, the next time this shows up, uh, it'll say that God's Word pre- prevailed, uh, which is an interesting, um, you know, the Word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so how does, how does the Word of God prevail? Anyway, it gets back to what I said about the Word of God being being the main, the main character. And uh, you see kind of the steady march of, <clears throat> of God's Word and how he's, doing, how he's doing His work. Maybe a way to best understand uh, this idea, <clears throat> I want to try to speak clearly here. The, we might be inclined to say that the book of Acts is a, is a story about the church, and, and it's certainly at least that. Uh, but more than that, it's it's a story of Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. And so uh, when you start talking about the Word, and when you start talking about Jesus, and when you start talking about the church, it's really hard to see where one of those things stops and where the other one begins, and I would advocate we're not intended to delineate sharply between these concepts, uh, because we saw that already. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, right? So a persecution against the Church is a persecution against Jesus, um, uh, and, a, and a growth of the Word is a growth of Jesus, and so they're, they're all kind of working working together. But at the heart of all of it, uh, as... Um, Christians should be quick to say is the Word of God. It's right there. It's at the heart. So it is, it is um, as it says here, multiplying. It is increasing. And um, we can either understand that as a summary statement of the section that came before, or as a kind of um, declarative statement that will be unpacked with the, with the words that followed. Um, and in this case, uh, or, or both. Um, but here we're, we're going to see a way in which the Word of God is increasing and multiplying with the story or narrative that follows. With that recognition of the way Luke writes it here, that the Word of God increases and multiplies, and the inability to make a sharp delineation, say, between like Jesus and his church, as you brought up the Acts 9 passage, later in Acts 9, it, it does talk about the, the church throughout all Judea and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And it talks about the church, there's a multiplication of the church as well. What What's the effect of, of this recognition? What impact does that have on us as Christians? What's the, the comfort there? Well, the one is that uh, the, the Lord will do His work, and so there's comfort in uh, not making the, the onus be on us. Uh, but look at God's faithfulness. Look at, what, see, look at how uh, God's promises, spoken of, of old through the patriarchs and the prophets, uh, is now coming to fruition, and so we see the ongoing um, fulfillment of the promises of God through the proclamation of the Word of God and the accompanying benefits of grace, forgiveness of sins, sacraments, and the like. Additionally, you did talk about it in Acts chapter 9 how the word church shows up there. Paul is not afraid, uh, excuse me, Luke, as an author, is not afraid to use the word church, and this is another reason why we should probably pay attention to these three places. He could have said the church increased and multiplied, much in the way that he did in in uh, chapter nine, um, but he doesn't. He 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 chooses the word of God. Uh, that's what's increasing and multiplying, and of course that uh, contains within it 
the activity of the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now, as the Word of God is increasing and multiplying, Luke brings back to our attention Barnabas and Saul, as well as John Mark in verse 25. We most recently encountered these three men in the end of chapter 11 and in chapter 12. Tell us a little bit about these three folks and and what they're doing here at the end of chapter 12. Barnabas is, uh, he shows up already in chapter 4. He's a native of uh, Cyprus. He's a Levite, very faithful man, and devout, sells his stuff, and that's where we introduce are introduced to him as one who has a field and sells it, and gives some money to the brothers. That precedes the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, so he's already uh, lifted up and presented to us as a man of great character and integrity, a faithful man of God. Saul, of course, is not presented this way. He's a persecutor of the Church, but he is uh, converted by uh, his Lord. And after his conversion, he comes to Jerusalem in order to collaborate with the fellow apostles and disciples, where they will not receive him because he has a reputation of one who kills the Church. Uh, It is Barnabas who brings him to the uh, apostles. That, so he facilitates that conversation. Uh, and my memory is fuzzy, and I can't help you out on the John Mark stuff. Well, John Mark That's wasn't mentioned too much, but he it was, it was the house of Mary, John Mark's mother. That's where Peter went. So we haven't learned too much about him, but he was mentioned in chapter okay. 12. Got it. So then, um, so that's, that's who these three are. Are yeah, and again, John Mark won't get mentioned much, um, but but Barnabas is certainly playing a significant role um, thus far, and he he has extended the uh, hand of fellowship, as it were. He was the first to extend that hand of fellowship to Saul by guiding him and advocating on his behalf before the apostles. Now uh, they have left Jerusalem, seemingly with, uh, you know, in good relationship with fellow apostles. And, um, and now here they are uh, back at uh, Antioch, which the, the narrative propels us forward in that run. So at the church in Antioch, uh, Luke identifies for us five men. Barnabas is listed first. Saul is listed last. And in, bethr- in between are, are three men. Uh, they're labeled as prophets and teachers. Do we know anything about the, the three men listed in the middle? Is there any significance to the way the, the names are given here? And, and what is their role as prophets and teachers? That was a long way of saying, talk about verse one. Okay. Well, uh, we know about Barnabas. We know about Saul. Uh Simeon, just he gets another name, uh, Niger, uh, then we have Lucius, and then uh, a guy whose name I struggle to pronounce, Manan, perhaps, and uh, we're told that he's a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and so what we see is uh, this isn't just um, the, the, you know, you're getting a broad representation of people who are hearing the Word of God and believing it. It's not just the down and out. Mm. Um, it's certainly that. Widows and orphans, are right? The widows are not to be neglected in the daily distribution. Um, but there, there are people who are higher up. That certainly is what Saul would qualify as. Um, and, um, and so we see this here. Herod the Tetrarch, who's by no means a friend of the apostles, has within his own courts uh, a man uh, of faith. So they're they're working together. Uh, I don't. We don't know too much more. The reference to them as prophets and teachers, um, we prob- probably I would say we do not have uh, very clearly delineated and defined offices of prophet and teacher um, like we might want to have. Um, but uh, teachers do that. They teach, and, and prophets are ones who speak the word of God. Uh, upon the people. We should not be understanding the word prophet as the idea of uh, predicting the future, uh, you know, this idea of biblical prophecy. We can figure out, you know, when the end times are coming. It's, it's not that. To be a prophet and a teacher is, is one to proclaim faithfully uh, 
the truths of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's what these men are doing. In Acts chapter 11, we did meet a prophet by the name of Agabus, who was given a word that did speak to what was going to happen in the future in terms of the famine. But I, I do think you're right here that at the beginning of chapter 13, the prophets and teachers doesn't seem to be that sort of special gift from the Spirit, but rather, and again, as you said, not carefully defined at this point and perfectly delineated as much as we might like, but it sounds like these prophets and teachers were doing something close to what pastors do in the church today. Is that fair? That's, that, is certainly, that is certainly fair. Yep. So well, we, that's, a, that's go, quite a congregation, okay. five pastors. It must be a mega church. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Something That's like that. Sarcastically for our viewers out there. Okay. That's right. Well, they they worshipped and fasted at this mega church. So I don't know if that happens at mega churches still today. Do they worship and fast? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I serve a small parish. <laughs> All right. So they are worshiping and fasting. I mean, that's, it's interesting, the, the mention of fasting, because I don't know that, that that's something that's necessarily a part of most American Christian experience, the experience of fasting, but it is a part of what's happening there at the church in Antioch. And in that context, the Holy Spirit speaks and, and designates Barnabas and Saul to be set apart, which the church then does with after, you know, fasting again and praying. Take us into this, I don't know what we want to call it, commissioning of, of Saul and Barnabas? Sure. Sending? So, something like that? As you said, yeah, the Holy Spirit, um, we, we shouldn't... Uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we should not be surprised that the Spirit is at work where the people of God are worshiping uh, their Lord. The Holy Spirit says unto them, and we are not told the mode of speech, so we should be very careful about um, saying too much on that front. Um, this is um, very specific instructions, though, um, typically far more uh, specific than uh, it's, it's very specific, so it lends ourselves to the idea of perhaps a vision or, or a dream, but, but we're not told what it is. And the, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me um, Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And uh, then after they're done with the fasting and the praying, they lay their hands on them. So this endorsement of uh, the fellow brothers of ministry, um, and then they and then they send them off, obeying uh, the command of the Spirit, uh, who visited them in their worship, and so that's what we have going on, going on here. I would also add, and I would imagine you've heard this multiple times by various uh, guests on your show that. Uh, not everything in Acts is to be understood prescriptively, yes. as though we should uh, worship and pray and wait for the Holy Spirit to speak specific instructions to us concerning uh, the people in our midst. Um, but this is this is what happened as the Word of God is growing and multiplying. Mm. Yeah, we, we have talked about that previously, that there are a, a number of things in the book of Acts we should understand as descriptive rather than prescriptive. This is Luke describing what happened, not prescribing, not the Holy Spirit prescribing for the church what is to happen in every place and in every time. That is, I mean, it is, maybe inter maybe it's not interesting, maybe it is, but the, the matter of the praying and laying on of hands, that still is used within the church in many places when it comes time to I mean, for example, we're, we're getting close to what I sometimes refer as ordination season in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, where there are a number of pastors who will be ordained coming out of our, our seminaries. The praying and laying on of hands is something that we've retained, even if it wasn't prescriptive. It, it has been retained in many places. Yes, it has. And it, it's very much a public uh, action uh, or a, an endorsement, as it were. Uh, of the work, uh, it may be more than that, a gesture of unity. Like, we all recognize that this, these men are going to go do this thing. Uh, we are united with them in that particular task, uh, and we will continue to pray 
um, that the word of the Lord grows and increases uh, through their ministry as they're sent off. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's neat that uh, the Holy Spirit says set, set apart. You know, for me, like um, almost you almost get the impression as though the Holy Spirit is um, asking asking permission. Um, <laughs> to uh, to do this, but the, it's not that the the Holy Spirit is. Hey, I've got a specific task that I want these two two men to carry apart, carry out, uh, and so you're going to have to uh, set set them apart. Which speaks again to uh, a unity that is uh, to be praised um, and lauded that uh, they they had to take what they were doing and kind of break it into two two parts, but mm. not at the sake of um, sacrificing the gospel. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I think it's, I mean, it's an imperative verb there, I think, set apart for me, the whole Barnabas and Saul, so I don't know if it's asking permission, but... <laughs> but I, I do I appreciate the point that you're making though, and I, I think this is a good thing to notice with the you've got these five men who are listed as prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch, and now the Holy Spirit says, take these two and set them apart for another work to go somewhere else. And I, I I mean, and this isn't this is an interesting interplay that we can talk about here. On the one hand, you've got these men and, and and maybe the whole church is involved in this. I'm not not sure if we should understand that only the the other three men are the ones that lay hands and pray, or if there's a, an element that the whole church is involved. But they do the the sending off, and then in verse four it says that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So, who's doing the sending here? Right. Well, uh, when uh, yeah, the the Holy Spirit is uh, doing the sending, and true to form, God is using means to carry out his work. Um, and uh, so I think back to the third article of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Now, if you're just an outsider sitting in, it might sound like you're talking about uh, separate things. Right? We say there are three articles. I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son, I believe in God the Holy Spirit. So those are the first three, and then you might think that the Holy Christian Church is a separate fourth thing, and the communion of saints is a separate fifth thing, and the forgiveness... No, it's not that. It's the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is at work in these areas, in the Holy Christian Church, in the communion of saints, in the forgiveness of sins. This is where the Holy Spirit is uh, at work um, making a people uh, for the Lord, and uh, here we see that at play very, very clearly. Um, the Holy Christian Church is going to do something, and when that thing is done, all credit is given to the Holy Spirit, because the Church is through uh, through whom He works. So that should be, um, you know, help us understand, or we could think about the idea of uh, authorization, who has authority to do what uh, and where, and then who gets credit. We never want to be accused of un of theft. We don't want to take uh, glory that doesn't belong to us uh, from our Lord. So we keep it keep it on the Lord, recognizing at the same time that he'll use means to carry out his work. Hmm. Well, and that, that may, your last comment there may lead into this next question that I was going to ask with the Holy Spirit in the third article and the, you know, the Holy Spirit creates the Holy Christian church. And then, I mean, the, the interplay that's there, how does this sending of Barnabas and Saul and, and by extension, then what we speak of the office of the Holy ministry, our pastors today, how does, how does that office fit into the work of the Holy Spirit and, and what he does in the, in the Christian church? Uh, well, I'm going to lead to the, the Holy Spirit is referenced explicitly in uh, Article 5 of the Augsburg Confession, where after talking about justification, it says the Holy Spirit works when and where, when and where he wills, um, and, you know, uh, through these, these ways, the preaching of the, uh, the Word and the administration of the sacraments is how he's going to carry out that work. So uh, that's where we see kind of the office of the Holy Ministry, um, specifically within, well, within the Church, of course, um, is this is 
is just a regular means through which the Holy Spirit is going to accomplish uh, God's task here on earth. Hmm. I don't know if I quite answered your question. No, I, I think so. I think so. And it, what you what you said reminds me of, of conversations that I've had previously when it came to, for example, what happens with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch or Peter and Cornelius, that in those situations, you know, like the spirit directs Philip to go to the Ethiopian eunuch that and, and he makes use of that preaching office to give the Ethiopian eunuch the gospel. And, and similarly with Peter, he, he sends Peter to go to Cornelius and his household so that the gospel is preached rather than some sort of like direct revelation to these, to the Ethiopian eunuch or to Cornelius. Rather, he makes use of that preaching office to proclaim the gospel. So he does here again through, through Barnabas and Saul, sending them to proclaim the gospel. And, and in that same way, through the hearing of the word, the preaching of the word, the, the word increases and multiplies. Right. Yep. And then, uh, I can't help but connect this then to John 20, where Christ appears in the upper room after his resurrection, mm. breathes on them his Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Mm. And so we have that interplay of, you know, Father, Son, Holy, the, the Holy Trinity, there at work. Um, the Word of God, back to the Word of God growing and multiplying. You know, God the Father through his Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, sending out uh, men through this established office that others might likewise be gathered into this one holy Christian and apostolic church. And Luke will keep recording that account of the word increasing and multiplying into Cyprus as we pick up the rest of the text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron. We're talking Acts 12 and 13 with Pastor Tim Cook. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, May 30th. We're studying Acts chapter 12, verse 24 through chapter 13, verse 12 with Pastor Tim Cook. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Lynn, Kansas. Pastor Cook, prior to the break, we're looking at the sending of Barnabas and Saul that happens from Antioch. And in verse four, Luke begins to describe their travels to us. He says they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And it, it seems that our reading has their activity then on the island of Cyprus, which I, I just gave away part of the geography. So talk a little bit about their, their travels at this point from Antioch to Seleucia to Cyprus. Where are they going? Any reason that they go there first? Sure. Cyprus is uh, an island, so you have to sail to get there. And that's what they did. Um, they, it, there seems to be some rationale here uh, in, in worldly sense, which is Barnabas is originally from Cyprus. Hmm. Uh, we're told that back in Acts chapter 4. Additionally, the church in Antioch was, as you might say, planted or formed or chartered or established by men uh, who came from Cyprus. So when the um, persecution of the church occurs after the death of Stephen, uh, it says that people fled Jerusalem, they fled that persecution, and they went to Cyprus um, to get away from that persecution. From Cyprus, they uh, circled back, as it were, geographically speaking, uh, and they go to Antioch, and there they begin to um, preach... And the gospel, famously, um, the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles, and the Gentiles believe. So I don't want to give the impression that, I mean, Barnabas is from Cyprus, but the men who planted the church in Antioch are probably men from Jerusalem who, by way of Cyprus, 
ended up in, in Antioch. So for those of you whose Middle Eastern geography is a little sketchy, um, Antioch is not an island, and so you have the, uh, the people fleeing persecution flee west, and they start coming back east. Uh, they, had to, this, they had to sail back east to get to Antioch. And um, so now they're going to send these guys out. Well, how about we send Barnabas to his hometown? How about we send you back to the area that we just came from? It's possible they had contacts there. Contacts there. Maybe the men who had fled the persecution had already planted uh, some seeds of the gospel. Um, and so they desired some. A lot of this is speculation, but I think you can chalk it up to sanctified, educated guessing. Um, they recognized fields ripe for harvest. Now, one last thing I want to bring up, because I think it's important, is we have this wonderful passage about a prophet not being without honor except in his hometown, mm. and so maybe in that regard it wasn't the smartest idea that Barnabas heads back to his hometown, but I'm not sure. Oh, well, fair, fair enough. And I think, it, I mean, that's helpful context, so that perhaps we we don't, we don't understand that Cyprus is not like when Paul or Saul and Barnabas go to Cyprus, this is perhaps not the first time that the gospel has been proclaimed on that Island. There, there have been Christians, certainly men from Cyprus who are Christians. And I don't know if there would have been Christian congregations there or not. I guess we can't know. We could speculate perhaps, but there, there are people on Cyprus who have heard the gospel and presumably have shared it at least somewhat there already before Saul and Barnabas show up at in this time. Yeah, I I mean, if you're a Christian, you talk about Christ. Right. That's what you do, uh, you know? And um, to what extent are you seeking to save your own skin uh, when you're fleeing persecution? I'm, I don't know. But when you move into a new community, people ask, you know, oh, what brings you here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Oh, funny story. Uh, I had to come here because they were going to kill me over there. Oh, are you a criminal? No, I just proclaim Christ, you know, raised from the dead. Um, I don't know what conversations uh, occurred, but it's um, good news demands to be, right, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Good news just insists on being shared. And so, yeah, I think you're uh, spot on. We can safely assume that uh, the gospel has been proclaimed to some degree on the island of cyprus um so why not why not start there see if we can build on the work that's already been done so as they they land at salamis which it, uh, on the map that i'm i'm looking at that is on the eastern coast of cyprus and then they will travel basically across the island to the to the western coast of that island to paphos in in our text so they land at Salamis. We don't hear a ton about what happens there other than they start by proclaiming the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And then John is is there with them, John Mark. The choice of, of going to the synagogue of the Jews, why why begin there? Right. I, I would begin there um, because they have the scriptures. Um, I think we often fail to realize how significant the Jew-Gentile distinction is uh, back then, because we aren't yeah. living it. But, um, you know, it's you talk to a Gentile and you drop the name Abraham, and unless they studied, you know, the history of the Jewish people in elementary school, who are you talking about? Well, who cares? You know, um, and so the the people, you start in the synagogue, you already are speaking to people who have uh, a literacy and a and by all historical accounts, a darn good literacy uh, of the Word of God. So you can build on that. Hey, this is, look at what the Scriptures testify. Look at what Isaiah the prophet is saying. This is what Ezekiel is up to. This is what Elijah spoke and did. And, and so you can just build on that base knowledge of uh, Yahweh, uh, who has promised to send as a Messiah that is fulfilled in uh, his only begotten Son, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, so that's it's it's a pretty uh, natural place to start because you've got a foundation to build on. Hmm. Yeah. 
Okay. I think that's probably enough. Sure, sure. And I, I mean, this is this generally then sets up a, a pattern of sorts for and I'll, Paul and his ministry. Generally, when he goes to a place, that's where he starts is in the synagogue. Correct. Yep, that is, you're exactly right. So we see that already here as Barnabas and Saul go to the synagogue in Salamis. John Mark is with them. Again, not much is said. He's there to assist them is what Luke tells us. Now in in verse 6, their travels continue. They go through the whole island and as far as Paphos again. So they've, they've gone across the island. And although Luke doesn't say, presumably they're stopping in certain places along the way, doing more of this proclaiming of the word of God. But he takes us to the end of their journey to Paphos, to the other side of the island. And, and here we meet an opponent of the gospel. His name is Bar-Jesus, or I I think, tell me if I'm reading this right, Pastor Cook. He's named Bar-Jesus in verse 6, and then he also has the name, or it means Elymas in verse 8. That's the same person, right? Correct. Same person. Um, So, yep, they meet a, exactly what you said, Uh, depending on how you want to, what label you want to take from scripture this man is a magician uh also called a false prophet so we should rightly understand um these things to be synonymous as we do in luther's small catechism in the second commandment about you know witchcraft is a misuse of god's name um it uh it's a, it's a deception so um we have the this bar jesus guy is doing that the, the Bar-Jesus guy appears to be, uh, it just says he's with the proconsul, uh, a man named Sergius Paulus, uh, who's um, denoted for his intelligence. Um, mm. And uh, we don't aren't given further details. Maybe this is uh, an advisor of some sort, um, maybe a close friend, uh, neighbors, we're, we're not sure. But it is uh, Sergius Paulus, this proconsul. He, you know, he's a he's a in charge of the government. He probably has uh, a vested interest in understanding what's happening on his island, which might be why he, um, well, to summon the Barnabas and Saul. However, uh, we're told that he desired uh, to hear the word of God. So. He wants to hear this good news that's being proclaimed and that he's heard about, but Elymas, uh, uh, or I don't... Which you, you choose the name we refer now. to him as. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll call him Elymas. Okay. Elymas uh, is not, he, he's not keen on this at all, and, uh, and so he is opposing uh, the proclamation of the gospel, he's opposing the men who do it, uh, and he's... Uh, working very hard to make sure that the that the proconsul, the Sergius, um, is uh, turned away uh, or finds the faith, the object of the faith, distasteful. Mm. Is, is there, I mean, you know, you mentioned that, that Luke does single him out as a, a man of intelligence, Sergius Paulus. Is there, and yet he's being deceived by this false prophet, this magician. What, is there is there something something there that uh, you, you can be really smart and yet you can still be deceived when it comes to to spiritual matters? Yeah, I think that's uh, the way. I hadn't considered that till you just said it, but I there's a lot of wisdom there. Uh, precisely, well, or rather, a lack of wisdom, yeah. right? And intelligence without wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of that. Um, that's what you that's what you need. So, yeah, intelligence does not equate to uh, faith, nor should we understand faith to be um, equal to equal to intelligence. But what? And it maybe shouldn't surprise us that the guy who's in charge of the government is an intelligent fellow. Sure. Um, probably uh, just part and parcel for the a job requirement. Mm. Um, but uh, so yeah, he's he's given that he's given that label, and. Uh, also, the, the very first missionary journey, right, <laughs> mm. as it were, and uh, what happens? It does not take long before they are encountering uh, a, a false prophet. Just after talking about prophets and teachers, mm. now they're out trying to teach, and they encounter they encounter a false prophet. So the reference uh, to um, 
oh, ti- in Titus, right, the, the idea mm-hmm. of being able to uh, rebuke those who do not teach what accords of sound doctrine. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's what's happening. And interestingly enough, Titus is on a different island by the name of Crete. Hmm. Um, and so that's what they're that's what they're up to. You got to kind of know what you're talking about. Hmm. Now, uh, so Elymas has set himself against the preaching of Saul and Barnabas at this point. In verse nine, there's a there's and I don't know how much we want to say about this, but in verse nine, Luke writes, "Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit." This is. Uh, and I'm, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I believe this is the place within the book of Acts where Luke now will begin to refer to Saul slash Paul as Paul exclusively, except maybe a time or two where, where Paul is speaking about himself and he uses the word Saul. But from here on out, we're going to hear about Paul, right? Correct. Yep. This is the spot. Um, it, and then, uh, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, of course. Uh, we saw him filled with the Holy Spirit when he was baptized in chapter 9. Ananias lays his hands on him uh, to restore his sight and fill him with the Holy Spirit. And um, and then the, the Holy Spirit was at work in the worship and fasting in Antioch. The Holy Spirit was at work in sending him out, and now here he is uh, with, uh, with the Holy Spirit. And it uh, says he's, well, he, he calls Elymas out. Um, and he strongly rebukes him, mm. and <laughs> he calls <Yes>. him <laughs> the son of the devil. <laughs> and it's—I mean—that is a almost verbatim translation. Uh, and then, enemy of all righteousness, um, or uh, an adversary of all that is right. I like the phrase "enemy of all righteousness," mm. and uh, that's just—that's who you are, and and why. Mm. What makes you a son of the devil? Well guide people away from, you know, direct people away from the Word of God, seek to present, protect, uh, to build up a barrier, It's that's uh, contrary to the will of God. You know, protect us from this, uh, dear Father in Heaven. Mm-hmm. So Paul says, uh, don't, uh, don't do that. And then he additionally goes on, and he says, uh, will you not stop making uh, crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And, um, well, he also calls him full of all deceit and villainy. So it's, it's quite the laundry list of names, uh, really. Uh, this man probably uh, is a well-regarded um, academic. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and now Paul shows up and he says, it, it's worth nothing. Uh, it's worse than that because it's not in service to Christ. Mm. Um, it is... It's of the devil, and that should at least cause us all to pause and evaluate, okay, the gifts that God has given me, um, are they, you know, what are they worth? Apart from Christ, nothing. Hmm. Absolutely nothing. So, hmm. I, I do think it's, it's significant that here at the beginning of the first, what we usually call this the first missionary journey that Paul takes, that the first opponent that he meets is is Elymas, who he he says, you know, you are the son of the devil, that you see from the, the outset the opposition that Paul will face throughout his journeys, that that who's who's behind it? It's it's not just human players, but this is this is the work of the devil also trying to prevent the the multiplication and the increasing of the word of God, that there are both human enemies and spiritual enemies working in concert against the gospel. Right, yeah, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, against principalities, powers, um, and we, uh, you know, we stand against the, the devil and his uh, schemes. We're not ignorant of the devil's designs. Um, yep, the whole the Holy Spirit is in battle against uh, Satan himself, and uh, Satan doesn't stand a chance. So, right. uh, God be praised for that. There's um, this idea of making crooked. The, the paths of the Lord is uh, should remind. It's almost like the anti John the Baptist, yeah, right. Who's out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, which he's out and he's proclaiming uh, baptism for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. Right, this turning toward Jesus, and uh, to twist, to turn, is to so you, you get the very clear impression that Elymas is, you know, he's 
taking people away from Christ. And this is how I often teach repentance in my own parish and catechism class. Um, if we understand repentance uh, to be a, a turning, a specific, and we usually phrase it within the context of turning away from sin, uh, which is fine, but any movement toward Jesus is by nature a movement away from sin. Okay, so, so a movement toward Jesus or a reliance, a fear, love, and trust in Jesus, uh, that, that welcome to repentance, okay? It's a durative, ongoing, uh, never-ending thing. You are living constantly in... It's, repentance is not a thing that you accomplish and check off a to-do list. Uh, repentance is it's just the shape of how you live. Um, it's our baptismal identity, a daily drowning and rising in uh, in life. So, um, Elemis has uh, he's gotten that wrong for sure, and he's and and it's it's beyond that, right? Like he's interested. It's not even just like a personal decision. He is causing uh, someone else to disbelieve, which reckons or our minds should recall, uh, you know, woe to the one through whom temptations come. Um, if anyone should cause one of the, these little ones to sin, it'd be better for him to tie a millstone around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Um, and uh, in a sense, uh, this proconsul is not a little one, as in a child, and yet he is like a child in the sense that he lacks understanding and wisdom. So... Hmm. Yeah, I was. On element. I, I was thinking of the I, the. I appreciate the woe that you brought out. I was thinking of the woes that Jesus speaks to the the Pharisees and scribes, where he he talks about them, you know, shutting the kingdom. They don't enter the kingdom of heaven, and then they shut the kingdom of heaven to others. All right. You know, I mean, th- those same types of things. And I and, and and I don't know if it's the same woe, but I believe he calls them blind guides within that, which it's it's perhaps a bit ironic then that that blindness is what the Holy Spirit sends upon Elymas as a as a judgment. Yeah, we should probably talk about that, Pastor in, Cook. Yeah, tell us about direction. the blindness. Yeah, so after uh, this stern rebuke from uh, Paul, it says, uh, "Behold, the hand of the Lord is." A, well, he go, goes on and he declares, "Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you," and he says, "You will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time," and then we get a description. Uh, of what happens, immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And so there, there's different things at, uh, at play here. One of them, and I'll just throw this into your court, uh, Pastor Apple, is there. a Greek can be fuzzy, but when a question is posited uh, in Greek, um, you can indicate by the way you phrase the question, by the words you use, whether you're expecting an affirmative answer or a, or a negative answer. So when Paul says, um, "Will you uh, cease? Will you not stop making crooked uh, the straight paths of the Lord?" Um, it uh, he's anticipating a, a yes. Um, so it is, is that a double negative? So yes, he's not going to stop, or is this, yes, you are going to stop? I'm not quite sure. Hmm. Um, But he is expecting an affirmative answer to that question. That we can say for sure. Um, I think it might be idiosyncratic, but I I see some grace here. Um, In the same way that Paul was struck with blindness, um, and the end result of that was uh, the laying on of hands, the recovery of sight, and his baptism into Christ, uh, I think we could, um, you know, maybe that is uh, what is winked at or hinted at by this parallel story. We also have the parallel story of Simon the Magician. Uh, so this is not the first magician to show up in, in Acts. And Simon the Magician uh, does well, falls away, and then asks uh, that Peter uh, intercede on his behalf. Um, and so here you have a guy who's got to ask people just just to lead him lead him around we're not told how that story ends um so it, it maybe maybe it's too much to uh speculate into the into the hidden things of god but i think there are enough cues here 
again, maybe it's it's winking at, at a mercy, and we do know, we do know the Lord to be abounding in steadfast love and, and faithfulness, and it would certainly be within his character to take an opponent uh, of uh, the gospel and show him how much he must suffer for the faith. Yeah. And uh, and so it, it's certainly within uh, the realm of possibility. Sure, and and uh, even if it even if it didn't happen, because as you said, we we can't know for sure with Elemis. But even even without knowing for sure what happens with Elemis, I do think that the parallels that you're mentioning at least ought to remind us as the readers of Acts that it should we ever find ourselves in the in this position or encounter someone in this position to recognize that the Lord is merciful and does desire to bring salvation to such a one. I think that's that's there even if we don't know for sure what happens to Elemis. So I the, I think the parallels are important. Uh, we just to, yeah. just so that we get to make sure we talk about this because we got about four minutes here, Pastor Cook. Talk about okay. then how the the proconsul, what Sergius Paulus makes of all this. Yeah, so he sees all this, and then it says uh, when he saw what occurred, he was uh, for uh, when the proconsul believed. Then, excuse me, I'm not speaking clearly. Then, after this event occurs, this toe to toe with uh, Paul and Elymas, uh the proconsul believes. And it says he believes when he saw what had occurred. And then we have this beautiful line that should definitely, it's right there in the open, but don't lose sight of it and, and don't overlook the importance of what's being said. It says, for he, referring to Sergius Paulus, was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Hmm. Okay, so this isn't a, um, it's not, he was astonished at the great sign that was done. Um that certainly would be a natural reaction that wouldn't cause any of us to bat an eyelash. But the narrator, Luke, goes out of his way to clarify that Sergius Apollos is astounded by by the teaching. It's the teaching of of the Lord that's that's got his uh, got his attention. Uh, likewise, um, the turn well. I was going to connect it back, but I was, I was thinking of a different, I was thinking of a different verse. So it, the power of course is in the word. It's in right. faith. It's in Christ. It's in his word. Um, and it's not contingent upon uh, our ability to do miraculous signs and wonders. Uh, all, all that is needed is available for us uh, in the word of God and is blessedly given to us at his direction and by his will uh, through his uh, ordained means um, and uh, God be praised that that good news comes to astonish us uh, into the kingdom of faith as well. Yeah, God God be praised for the way that that teaching of the Lord continues to work in our lives and our congregations, that the word of God increases and multiplies among us still today. Pastor Tim Cook is pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Lynn, Kansas, helping us today with Acts chapter 12, verse 24 through chapter 13, verse 12. Pastor Cook. Thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 12 or 13, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.